Welcome to Episode 3 of the Dystopian Academy Podcast. It's been kind of a bumpy month here, and I lost a couple weeks due to family issues. So this episode is going to be a little shorter and less polished than I would have liked it to be. But I didn't want to keep delaying the episode, so here it is. On a more positive note, I'm happy to report that we've passed 160 downloads for the Dystopian Academy podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I couldn't do this without you guys, and I'm just glad I can be doing something to help grow and support the Dystopian Wars community for all of us. I got a question from a listener about terrain setup. This is something that I tried once to ask of War Cradle to show us a picture of, of one of their sample setups or something like that, so we could get an idea for how many islands and what size and just generally what their tables looked like. Unfortunately, we did not get one of those, so we're all just sort of winging it. I've been using sort of the same setups that I used to use for the old Uncharted Seas and Dystopian Wars. What I did was I took the set of islands and rocks and things that uh, I typically use and set them together in kind of a rectangular shape in the corner to get a measurement. It came out to roughly 10% of the table surface. Now, I know some of you are immediately thinking uh, that's really low. You know, in land games, they're always recommending that you have at least 25%, 33% or something. But one thing to keep in mind is you're not really measuring the same thing. All of the terrain that makes up this 10% is impassable and uh, almost always line of sight blocking as well. It's really solid terrain. Where out of the 25% you have in like a fantasy land game or something like that, most of it is just going to be lighter terrain. It's going to be slow movement. It's going to be concealment, you know, things like that. Uh, but it's still going to be passable. It's still going to be stuff that you can shoot through or over, maybe with a penalty. But the amount of completely solid terrain in those games is still going to be probably fairly low. Now, it's true that in Dystopian Wars, you can have like shoals or shallows or things like that that uh, more directly correspond to rough terrain in a land game. I haven't made any of those templates yet. Uh, it's something that I should do at some point. But it's still, I think, going to be a relatively minor component of your table. Now, some of you may want to have something like a nice picturesque chain of rock spires, and it, it really looks cool when you do that. But when you do something like that, think of it in your mind as being one solid piece for movement purposes. Even though there's going to be small spaces in between those spires, it's not going to be useful for most ships to pass through. Maybe frigates, but in many cases, uh, if, if your cruiser are larger, you don't want to risk going through those things and hitting them. Now, what it does do is it gives you something that's solid for movement, but also allows some line of sight. The target may get obscured, but you can still make a shot at them. So that does give you some variation. And I do like to have small chains of rock spires uh, around my board, maybe three, four spires, something like that, in a, a little row with a little curve to it, something like that to look nice. But it's, it's not super different. At some point, I'm hoping that they will come out with a more official recommendation. But for now, I would say just you know use what you've got. Fantasy game hills make excellent islands. You do want to have some islands that are big enough for units of ships to try to hide behind them. 
so that you know they can kind of approach in a safe manner, but not so much that uh, a bunch of short-range ships can just roll up on you and you have no opportunity to shoot back at them. What I've seen is sort of a trend with British gaming companies is they like to put that kind of thing into their tournament document. So it's possible we may have to wait for something like that to come out before we get a a better terrain recommendation. So one thing that I think beginners can sometimes struggle with is knowing when and when not to link fire on their ships. Should you combine all of them together into one big shot? Should you fire separately? How do I know I'm making the right choice? So to understand that question, let's take a look at how damage works in the game. One die, on average, is equal to one hit if there's no modifiers like Obscured or something like that. Now, to do damage to a ship, you're looking to meet or exceed their armor rating, or potentially to exceed a multiple of that armor rating, and then you can do more damage at once. Along with that, you have a critical rating, which is generally either equal to or extremely close to two times their armor rating. If you manage to get to their crit level, you get additional bonus effects. If you get to two times their crit level, then you oddly don't get the critical effect, but you do two more damage. The other thing to understand is that any excess hits over an armor multiple are kind of wasted because there's no such thing as a half a point of damage. Say if the target has an armor rating of five, if you do five damage, that's zero waste. If you do six damage, you've kind of wasted one hit, and so on up to where if you got nine hits, then you've wasted four hits. That would be the most disappointing kind of result. So given that a die is equal to one hit on average, a kind of a sweet spot might be to have maybe two or three dice more than the target number of hits that you're trying to get to. And this will give you pretty good reliability of not falling short, but also not wasting too much. You kind of have to color this with how important the shot is, you know, and and other effects too, but it's just a rough rule of thumb. Now, any effects that block or remove hits, like shields or aerial or submerged defense, tend to encourage more linking because they apply separately to each shot. If you make a lot of small shots, they're going to use their shield four or five times. But if you do one big shot, they're only getting to use it once. On the other side, effects that trigger on doing damage, like piercing and alchemical, encourage taking smaller shots, where you would like to get those things to happen more than once. Now, we talked about the double critical and how it does damage instead of a critical effect. Sometimes you want one, sometimes you want the other, and this is going to affect the target number of hits that you're trying to achieve. If you're playing Empire, it can be important to leave a critical effect or to place a critical effect on a ship because you might want to trigger Mark of Yama. In one of my test games using a full unit of Dao light cruisers, we actually had a lot of trouble with that because uh, when I was combining all my shots into one, we would do a lot of double criticals and I could never get critical effects to stick on the enemy flagship. In that case, I probably could have benefited from making a smaller attack, you know, splitting it into two, and then having one of those shots get the Mark of Yama benefit. You also want to think about what you're trying to achieve. 
sinking the ship is a great goal and probably your preferred goal if you can do it. But if a ship is not going to get sunk this turn, as it is something big like a flagship, then maybe placing critical effects on it is going to help you more than just placing a lot of damage that, that still doesn't take it out. Other times your goal might be to cripple as many ships as possible without necessarily sinking them. Crippling multiple ships could be better than sinking one. I realize that this is not necessarily giving you a firm guideline. My goal is for you to more understand the factors that you should be using to make a good decision. But if you're not sure, or all this sounds way too complicated, then you're seldom going to go far wrong by linking everything into one giant shot. This also has the beneficial effect of speeding up the game. Personally, I think getting in more games in an evening is a good thing. So if most of the time you're making one big shot, that's going to help the game resolve faster and maybe have time for a second one. The biggest exception to the always link everything idea is when it would be massive overkill. In that case, you're probably going to want to split it up into two or three shots, put enough to finish off your target with a few extra dice for reliability, and then go after the rest of the unit. Another reason you may not want to link is if your weapon's natural number of dice falls into the sweet spot of being a little bit more than the target's armor. Your decision can also be affected depending on the weapon you use, as some weapons link more efficiently than others. Now, if you played the original Dystopian Wars under Spartan, you may not be that familiar with the differences in the background fluff between their world and the dystopian age that's being used by War Cradle. A lot of it is familiar enough. We know who these countries are, but one thing that was left out of the Dystopian Wars book in the history section is talking about the alien races that exist in this dystopian age. So I'd like to kind of give you a brief primer about that, not because it has a huge impact on dystopian wars, but it may come up in future games. And it's also just kind of interesting to know. If you'd like to know more about what I'm covering here, download a copy of the Wild West Exodus rulebook and you can read a more detailed history. So there are three different alien factions in Wild West Exodus. First, we have the Watchers. The Watchers are a consortium of multiple alien races who monitor planets, waiting for them to achieve a certain level of technological and cultural sophistication, at which point they can be invited to join into the greater galactic civilization. The Watchers includes races like the, the popular gray aliens that everybody knows. They will also prevent anyone from interfering with a race's development, and it is their job to exterminate races that are deemed too dangerous to allow to continue. Now, humans are not anywhere near ready to meet their criteria, so normally they would just be watching and not getting involved, except that something is messing with human development. So the Watchers were trying to put a stop to this interference when their ship crashed into Antarctica hundreds of years ago and became the vault that the Covenant of the Enlightened found, which kickstarted the technology of the dystopian age. That something that was interfering with human progress was known as the Hex. The Hex is a single being, not even really conscious in our sense, that has spent many centuries being hunted across the universe. It apparently just wants a planet where it can exist and not be attacked. And, oh yeah, maybe also to 
creep into the minds of the creatures living there and warp them into its servants and stuff. On arrival to a new planet, it does this by splitting off six hex seeds and scattering them around the world so that they can lure people in, merge with their minds, give them power and knowledge, and turn them into agents of the hex. It takes centuries for the hex to grow its power and maneuver its agents into positions of greater authority while feeding them bad ideas and technology in their dreams. The third and last alien presence is the Order, who are even more advanced races than the Watchers, and are basically dedicated to hunting down and exterminating the Hex because it's totally yucky. They have followed the Hex across many worlds, always driving it out but never quite managing to destroy it. And let me just say you kind of want them to win because they have a bad habit of destroying the whole planet just to make sure that the Hex is totally gone after it runs away again. Presumably, if it can split off these Hex seeds, you know, it could leave some behind or whatever. So what does this matter if you only want to play dystopian wars? Not really a whole lot. None of these alien races seem like good candidates to be future factions. They don't wage open war. They don't build naval warships. They probably have some degree of behind-the-scenes influence over different factions, but that really just affects the fluff. What we do know within the Dystopian Wars background is there's a major hex presence in the American Southwest, and the leader of the Sultanate is aware of the Order and supports their cause. Also, the Empire's celestial gift that they use to communicate telepathically is actually a hex seed that has been housed in a cage of pure jade, which shields it from the hex. All communication is cut off, and this allows it to be used without corruption. Anyway, like I said, if you want to read more about this stuff, download the Wild West Exodus rulebook. Next, I wanted to talk about what I felt were some commonly overlooked rules, or things that you know maybe you have to remember reading them, but you can't find them in the book, and uh, just to kind of lay some of these out. So first, if a weapon's arcs are marked as P-slash-S, you can fire to both sides at once, you know, a double broadside maneuver. So this can reward good maneuvering, particularly late in the game when the two fleets are very close to each other. A rules question that I've seen come up a couple times in the Facebook group. When a victory card says that you have to cripple or destroy a unit, that means that all the models left in the unit must be crippled or destroyed, not just a single model. Another thing that's easy to overlook is the sole survivor rule. The last ship left of a multi-ship unit gets a disorder token. They're scared they're going to get sunk like their buddies. Another tricky one here. If there's a group of ships that are linking fire and they're in different range bands, and you have a range-dependent weapon quality like Fusillade, then what you do is you divide your attack dice into two different pools, one that gets the ability and one that does not. In the setup rules, which come off to me at least as being a little bit complicated to read, one of the key points to remember is that if the second player to deploy finishes deploying all their units before the first player, they get to flip an extra card for another chance to get initiative on the first turn. Minor point, but you may have stopped reading at that point because it sounds like there's too many, you know, if this, then that combinations going on. Now, due to COVID, I know a lot of us have not been able to get in very many games, and a lot of our opponents, too, are probably just starting out. Consequently, there's a tendency that we're mostly playing small point games, smaller than the 
the typical 1500 force that I think is going to be standard. And also, when people are playing their first games in a new system, there's a tendency to not worry about scenarios. Let's just learn the mechanics, sail our ships around, blast the heck out of each other, and the winner is you know whoever's still alive at the end. Yeah, that's great. That's a fun game. But I thought maybe it's time to start talking a little bit about the scenarios and victory points in general. There are several sources in the rulebook that you can get victory points from. So first is the Squadron Killer. If you destroy a multi-ship unit, that gives you one victory point. You can also score VPs off of your flagships. Taking this from the rulebook, each unit with the flagship trait is worth plus one victory point to its owner if it survives. However, each flagship that is crippled by the end of the encounter means that your opponent also gains a victory point. Second, destroying your opponent's entire fleet is a five victory point bonus. This is often enough to tip the game and win, especially because an opponent with no ships is also not controlling any zones, which means that they're probably going to be losing out on those scenario points. Because five victory points is a pretty good chunk, I would expect that it's always going to be a win for the guy who destroys the enemy fleet. And victory points are only going to determine the winner when nobody destroys the other fleet within five turns. Or if you're playing in a tournament game and you don't have sufficient time to get to five turns. So those are the situations where you're going to want to pay more attention to the victory point bonuses. You can also get victory points from your victory cards. If we, you do not use them for the valor effect, you can use them for the victory effect, which is usually one victory point. Sometimes it's two, but they're going to add up over time. Now, in the book, there are six different scenarios described, and I'm just going to go through these kind of briefly. The first one is called Fog of War. You get one victory point at the end of each turn if you control a quarter on the enemy's side of the board. Then at the end of the game, you get five victory points for each quarter that you control. So this can be a pretty good hunk at the end if you're able to get that. The other part of Fog of War is the fog. All models are obscured until the fog lifts, which is increasingly likely each turn you roll for it. So this scenario tends to favor short-range ships as they're going to take a little less damage closing with the enemy. One thing to keep in mind is that the entire unit has to be completely within a quarter to count. So don't let a straggler ship prevent you from scoring. The second scenario is called Hold at All Costs. It's similar to the scenario that some games refer to as Breakthrough. You're trying to get to the enemy's side. It only scores at the end of the game, and you get two victory points for each of your units in the enemy deployment zone. If there are no enemy models within 10 inches of your unit, it gets plus three victory points instead. So this kind of rewards keeping the last ship alive in a unit while wiping out enemy units entirely. Now I would expect at the end of the game that there's not very many ships left on the table. So I wouldn't expect to get too many plus twos or plus threes. Next is a scenario called salvage rights. You place six one inch markers around the board. If a model starts its activation within an inch of a marker, it can perform a free search. This is done by rolling one action die. If you roll a hit, then you found one of the salvage things and you get two victory points. The token will be removed whether you find anything or not. There are always going to be exactly three tokens that have the prize. So if you get to the end and the last uh, prizes are not found, they'll automatically be there. 
If you find all three of them, the rest of the tokens come off because you know they're empty already. So to get those, you want to rush for the tokens. That means you're probably going to want frigates because they're the fastest. However, you also need to keep these models alive until their next activation so that they can make that roll, since it's based on the start of your activation. If you can pack a lot of frigates around it, they'll have to kill all of them to prevent you from doing the search. If there's a token that hasn't been grabbed yet, teleporting a Murmansk in could be a really interesting way to try to grab it. Incidentally, if you have ships left over from the earlier Spartan version of the game, these make excellent objective markers for the salvage mission. The next scenario is called Oil Fields. You're going to place two 2 by 2 oil platform markers. This sounds like a great thing for somebody to make and put on Thingiverse. They're placed in diagonal quadrants. Each round, you get two victory points if you have units within three inches of your oil platform, the one on your side, and four victory points if you have units within three inches of the enemy oil platform. What this means is that the areas around the platforms are probably going to tend to be kill zones, so expect your opponent to try to wipe them out before they get to score their points. And you may need to overcommit ships to have some of them live long enough to score. Rule the Waves is exactly the same as Fog of War, except without the fog part. It would have been nice to get a substantially different scenario, but I'm going to expect that there's more scenarios coming in the future, plus players are probably going to be making up their own. A popular thing back in the day when we were playing Uncharted Seas is we would come up with custom scenarios for tournaments and things like that. For example, there was one that we had where there were moving icebergs. They would drift in some direction each turn with the wind, so you had to be very careful with your navigation if you didn't want to get hit by one. The final scenario is called the Tempest. So at the start of the game, there's a big storm going on. All drift distances are doubled, which is bad news for big ships. And if a ship activates within 12 inches of the center of the table, it has to roll a crit die. If you roll a Sturgenium Flare, then that happens as a one-time effect. So 12 inches from the center means it's a 24-inch circle. It's pretty substantial. Just like in the Fog of War scenario, you roll each turn to see if the storm ends. Also, at the end of the game, you'll score 5 VPs for each unit that has any model within 12 inches of the center of the table. Typically, you're going to hope that the storm is over by then, so you want to stay out of the middle early, and then you want to go into the middle later. This means that there's going to be more traffic down the edges of the board, and it's probably going to advantage long-range fleets that can fire on you without having to enter that circle. The other interesting thing, though, is that because of the double drift distance, if you have a big ship that wants to be up close because it has a Sturmbringer or it has massive assault capability or something like that, they might actually benefit from going into the storm, getting an extra three inches of drift, maybe also getting extra movement from Sturgenium Flare, and possibly being up in your grill and murdering you really unexpectedly fast. So I'm going to be really interested to see if somebody can pull that off. I was fortunate enough to receive my Empire boxes at the local game store recently, so let's talk about uh, putting those together and the different classes you'll find inside. The Empire ships seem to have more parts than most of the earlier fleets, but they're still relatively straightforward to put together. There's only one frigate class as usual. The battleship can be put together into two different classes, but you don't need to commit to one or the other. There's a single center section that drops in 
to switch from one to the other so you don't have to glue it, you don't have to magnetize it, it'll stay in place on its own. The cruisers work very similar to the Commonwealth cruisers. There are long and short front decks and long and short rear decks, allowing for four different classes. Since the cruiser classes feature elevated pagodas on the models, my recommendation is that you do not glue these until after painting, or else it's very difficult to try to paint the deck under the pagoda. The frigates have a similar arrangement, but since they don't have the posts that hold up the pagoda, I would say it's pretty optional whether you put the tops on before or after painting. I did mine before and had no issues, I just had to breach my brush inside a bit. I haven't been able to play many games with them yet, but at this point I think my least favorite is the Meru Heavy Cruiser. If I want a rocket platform, I would prefer just taking the Dow Light Cruiser, and if I wanted to take gun batteries, I can't link the Meru's front rockets in, so it feels a little bit awkward. There might be an argument for treating it as an expensive version of the Dow with a rear interface generator. You'd be paying 123 points instead of 80 and getting greater durability. But you're also losing Shadow Hunter, which I feel is a really nice ability for a rocket battery ship. That lets you line up an advantageous angle on your enemy at the beginning of the game, which makes it more difficult for them to hide from your rockets behind line-of-sight blocking terrain. Anyway, long story short, I'm planning to build one unit each of Dao, Qian, and Wusang. As far as roles, I like the Dao for rocket bombardment, using Shadow Hunter as I was describing. The Wusang, I think, emphasizes the Hokyang, you try to get up close and take out enemy frigates with your template shot, which looks to be really, really useful. And then finally, the Jian is a pretty conventional ship that can take on a variety of roles. You can opt for a dual turret setup or just a front turret with an aft interface generator for durability. Note, however, that there is unfortunately no interface generator part on the sprues. For the time being, I would recommend proxying with a different generator, and the part will come out at some future time. Unfortunately, I've been out of town for a couple weeks, so I haven't gotten to get in as many test games as I usually would before an episode. But I did play a game the other day, trying out the Empire versus the Latin Alliance, and wanted to give a few impressions of how that went. I think everyone's had a pretty good chance to look at the Empire and be a little bit familiar with what they can do. I was initially kind of worried about the interphase generators being just too powerful. However, it didn't turn out to be as big an issue as I had kind of feared. I think the general effect is that opponents are going to direct their fire on everything except the big ships first. Then once you do start firing on the big ships, you just need to concentrate them and try to overwhelm their ability to protect themselves. Now, the other thing to keep in mind about the interface generator is that it counts as a special operation. And you also have your paddle wheels that you can use as a special operation. And that means you can't use both of them at once. Now, the knee-jerk reaction you know, is always going to be, oh, yeah, well, I would always want the shields. That's always the best thing. So, you know, who cares? But that really doesn't turn out to be true. So the Yangtze wants to stay back and use its bombards. And it's likely to want to use the paddle wheels to help it stay there, point towards its targets, not have to drift forward, and not have to take disorder. That doesn't mean it's going to use them every turn, but it's going to want to use them at least some of the time. 
also in the late game, if that Yangtze is still there, you're probably going to be trying to approach it from the sides, if possible. And that's what I found in my game, is that I, I got stuck in a tight spot where there's ships coming up on me, uh, in this case a unit of uh, Chevalier cruisers, and if I want to shoot at them at all, I have to turn. And I can't turn enough unless I use my paddle wheels. And if I use my paddle wheels, then I don't have my interface generator. So it's a, it's a tough choice. I ended up turning and shooting at them rather than keep taking fire because I, I didn't really have anything else super important to shoot at. But it is going to happen in real games. And with a sample size of one, it's already happening. If you have foolish opponents that come straight up the middle of the table pointed straight at you and they don't make you use it, then perhaps it won't come up so much. But that just means that you got lucky and you, you have an opponent that is not as uh, as tactically wise as he could be. Now, the biggest surprise that I had on the Latin Alliance side was the Chevalier Cruisers. I had two units of Chevaliers and I equipped them with the Heat Lances see how this would go. And my worry was that it's a lot of points. It's 125 points a cruiser, and being mostly accustomed to running Russians at this point, wow, that's a lot of points. Uh, and they they don't have the extra point of hull that the Russians have, and they don't have ablet of armor. And I was just concerned that this was a lot of points that were going to go up in smoke. But wow, those guys put out a lot of damage. <laughs> They don't necessarily need to get up close. They can stay back if they want to, as they have the torpedo turrets, double torpedo turrets. And the heat gun is still reasonable at long range. It, it does better the closer you get, but it's not terrible out there. Then maybe the next turn you can start creeping up and try to get to 20 inches. They do sink. I mean, definitely. They, they have the normal five armor for a cruiser, and it, it takes six hits. So you'll lose some, sure. But... They really put out so much damage. Everything can be fired at once because everything can shoot forward. And let me talk a little bit about the Heat Lance. If you just look at the numbers, you might not be super impressed with it. You're going to tend to think that the Heat Lance is worth an extra one-sixth of a hit per die. One of the six sides has an extra hit on it, so that's plus one-sixth, right? I mean, that's math. But it's not really that way, because it's the same side that also gives you an, another die. And that die is going to have an extra one-sixth, and the next one's going to have an extra one-sixth, and so on. So when you work this out, you're actually getting a lot more than what you thought. You're getting closer to like 1.4 hits per die. The other thing is that their damage is spiky. This comes from the hits you know, being added onto a side that already has a lot of hits and also generates another die, which tends to generate more hits. So they can be wild. Sometimes you just do amazing damage. You roll a bunch of exploding hits, and those turn into more hits, and maybe you get one or two more exploding hits, and the damage can just go woof right off the top of the shards. Personally, I like that. It makes them fun to play when you get one of those amazing hits. You feel really good. The other thing about it is it means that even firing individually or firing when you don't have enough dice, you're crippled or whatever, you never feel like you're out of it. There's always the chance that your heat lance is going to pull through. 
and you can fire them singly at frigates and feel like you're not wasting your shot. You've got a good chance that you might actually kill a frigate with a one-shot from a heat lance. So anyway, yeah, thumbs up on the Chevaliers. The battlecruisers, I thought, were fine. They're inexpensive. Yeah, they're a little fragile. I wouldn't use the heat lances on those because I want to be able to link with the gun batteries that they already have. I think in the faction, they make a great deal of sense to have a cheap flagship because you get the bonus uh, to your defense when you're close to a flagship. So in my test fleet, I put two of these in here. I can run one on both sides of the board, and virtually all my ships can be within 10 of one of these guys virtually all the time. And playing in this particular game you know, against Empire, that was really nice because there's rockets coming at me, and I want that extra three defense. It's not huge, but it's going to help out. And likewise, it's going to help out against other things in the future. It's going to help out against SRS. It's going to help out against submarines and torpedoes and you know whatever. In this particular game, I didn't use the carrier, so I didn't get to try out their extra defense from pilot tokens. Maybe another game, I just wanted to get the basics and see how the fleet more or less operated at a base level. One possible rules mistake that I want to point out if you're playing Empire, just because their carrier has Mark of Yama, that does not mean that your SRS tokens from that ship get it. When the SRS tokens make an attack, the attack is not coming from the ship, so it doesn't work. On the Empire ships, the Huaqiang didn't really come into play very much. It did late in the game, though, and it really was pretty valuable. In two separate occasions, I was able to take out multiple frigates, like three to five frigates in a single shot. And I'm going to make a recommendation that if you're playing Empire and you think you're going to be making use of your Huaqiang soon, hold on to any of those cards in your hand that let you re-roll the attack dice. Because however many hits you roll, that applies to everybody. It's a very all-or-nothing weapon. And the opportunity to increase your average number of hits by re-rolling those dice can literally mean the difference between wiping out a whole squadron of ships or not doing much of anything. Incidentally, on the Empire side, the same card is absolutely fantastic for heat lances. And because the heat lance is getting more than one hit per die average, I would recommend that you re-roll any single hits that you get. Only keep the doubles and the exploders. You're going to like it. You're going to like the results when you do that. Trust me. I also want to say that the dual torpedo turrets were great. They're, in my opinion, exactly what torpedoes need. When you have only two or three normal-sized torpedoes in a unit, they just don't amount to much. You're not getting enough dice to do anything very useful and then it gets lowered by defense, and too much chance it's just a dud, you know? But by having two of them on each ship, you can link together enough that now this is a weapon that you look forward to using. It's really going to do something. And then the bonus of having them on a turret so you don't have to fire them straight forward, they're just really, really nice to have. And if you're noticing that I'm giving more impressions about the Alliance side, that's sort of intentional because Empire rules have been out there a while. People are already a little more familiar with them and maybe even gotten in some games. So yeah, hoping to do a rematch between them in the near future. Now let's talk a little bit about initiative and bidding for initiative with your cards. On the first turn, you have no control over it. It's whatever you flip, and there's absolutely nothing you can do really to change the odds other than having a small force, which could allow you possibly a second flip. When should you use a high card to try and go first? And when should you keep it for its victory or valor effect? 
as a general rule of thumb, going first is usually huge, as long as it's not where you're still too far apart to do something really devastating. Even if you can do something fairly devastating with bombards or whatever, it's not critical to do it before the other guy, because chances are he can't do anything that bad either. But once the forces start closing, going first is nearly always the most valuable thing you can do with your card. The one possible exception is the additional activation card, getting it to go with two squadrons at once. In that case, you're going to have to kind of make a call as to which one is more important. The only thing I can say is that the double activation card can really catch people off guard. It lets you do something that's not normally possible, and sometimes that has a value in and of itself. In one game so far, I actually had two additional activations in my hand at once. I was able to do three units back-to-back, and it was just ridiculous. I mean, my opponent's force got hit so hard all at once that there was just not a way for them to come back. Now, kind of the flip side of that, though, is unless you've got a 60, you can't be 100% sure that your card is going to win the initiative. Even if you've got a card in the mid to high 50s, your opponent could have a higher card. What I recommend that you do is you keep an eye on the very high cards that your opponent plays. You don't have to track every card, but anything that's maybe a 55 and up, it's kind of worth knowing that that's out of play. And it's going to help you know whether there's a big risk that you're not going to win initiative after all. If you see a lot of those big cards gone already, that's great. Now you know they can't happen again. And that'll give you a little bit of an advantage compared to opponent who's not doing the same thing and is making that decision with less information. Ricardo Sipone has released the first version of a Battlescribe plugin for Dystopian Wars 3.0. This should work on any platform that Battlescribe runs on. I'm currently using it on iOS without any problems. Right now, it only supports Commonwealth, but he is working on updates to add the rest of the factions soon. Looking ahead at upcoming releases, the Moseyski Battlefleet box is arriving at the end of May, which will include the fleet carrier, two cruiser hulls that can be built as a Katanga, which has a cryogenerator and a drill, the Morosco, which has a cryogenerator but no drill, or as the Pravda support carrier. And finally, also includes two Stolotov Ekranoplans, which are skimming plane-like models that are expected to have torpedoes as their primary armament because we know they get the homing torpedoes upgrade when fielded in a Moseyski-themed battle fleet. The Empire Frontline Squadron will also be coming out, which just has more cruiser and frigate sprues to help bulk out your Empire fleet. The Katanga and Morosco appear to be identical models other than the front hull piece, so these will probably be pretty easy to magnetize and field as either class. I'm also speculating that when the Commonwealth Orbat is updated for these new classes, probably within the next uh, couple weeks, we may finally see the updated tri-railgun rules that we've been expecting for a while now. For late June, we should see the Tempelhof box with destroyers and an assortment of new cruiser classes for the Imperium that, like most of their models, will probably be modular. This should be very exciting for Imperium players and give them a lot of new options to play with. From prior pictures, I would expect to see the Conrad support carrier, a yet unnamed cruiser with a Sturmbringer, and possibly one more cruiser variant we don't know of. 
We should also see the support squadron box for the Commonwealth come out to get more cruiser and acronoplan sprues. Also, if you go and check out orderofgamers.com, they've just put out a nice Dystopian Wars rules summary that you can print out on a single double-sided sheet to refer to during games, along with a half-page play reference that mostly concentrates on the turn sequence, generator effects, crit effects, things like that. Also, four new classes of Crown Flyers were recently previewed for St. George's Day, so let's take a look. The Saxon Scout Rotor is the smallest, showing what looks like a gun battery on top, and the rotor is internal, it's not visible on the model. The Tentagel Battle Rotor is a bit larger, it's a two-rotor aircraft with what look like light broadside guns and, again, a gun battery turret on top. The Pride Aim War Rotor is a four-rotor aircraft, so even larger, with fore-and-aft heavy gun batteries and what I think must probably be heavy broadside guns. It has six little guns on the side where the Tintagel has only two. And then finally, there is the Avalon Sky Fortress. So Sky Fortress is dystopian speak for a flying fleet carrier. It's a, it's a big aircraft carrier in the sky. It has six rotors, various small turrets and broadsides, but it doesn't seem to be heavily armed because most of the room is reserved for the carrier deck. And that pretty much follows the same convention of the, the fleet carriers that operate in the water, too. They don't have a lot of armament because the planes are their armament. However, it is going to be a good while before these come out as actual models. Our best estimate is that the Crown Battlefleet box will be coming out in late August, and they'll need to get their basic classes out first. So the earliest you might see these could be the very end of 2021, but more likely 2022. We might be able to make a better guess when the full Crown Orbat is released, and we can see if any of these flyer classes are included there. And that's all I've got for you today. Tune in for the next episode when we'll be discussing the effects of different amounts of terrain, First impressions of the Acronoplan and Morosco Cruiser, doing some cross-faction ship shootouts, and more.